This evening, brothers and sisters, we return to our series in the book of Joshua. We'll be looking particularly at chapter 10, verses 1 through 28. You'll find that on page 185 if you're utilizing a pew Bible, that is page 185. In the next three chapters in our study, uh, that is chapters 10 through 12, we'll be reading about the conquest of Canaan by the Israelite armies. The event that we'll be reading about tonight, however, will be the last battle following the battles at Jericho and Ai that will be recounted or explained in detail. Uh, Beyond that, it will be presented in summary fashions with all sorts of themes that are attached to them. Uh, Caleb will be flushing more of that out next week as he takes up from uh, verse 29. So here is God's word. It is his inerrant word. So let's be careful to pay close attention to it. The word of God. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jamuth, to Jephiah, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jermuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon guided their forces and went up with their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by way of ascent of Bet-Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Machida. As they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Bet-Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. 
So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Machida. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machida. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stare to yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua, <clears throat> when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that, re remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Mechidah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, open them out of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jermuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, and said to the chiefs of the men in war, who had come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained to this very day. As for Machedah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did it to the king of Machedah just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Again, Father, we ask that you would open our hearts even now to hear your word. Speak to our hearts. Speak to our minds. Equip us to do your work and to know and grow in our knowledge of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So during my introductory sermon on this book, I mentioned that there were a few overarching themes that would come across as we made our way through this book. Listed among those themes was man's obedience to God's word as a path to godly success. And that's going to be one of the overarching themes uh, that I'm going to cover here this evening. And another, even more prominently displayed, uh, is the sovereignty of God in fulfilling and achieving his purposes. He, I argued, that is God, is the central character in this book, not its namesake Joshua. Yes, Joshua's action are constantly highlighted, However, in each instance that is the case, you won't have to look far. In each instance where that is the case, you would not, you don't have to look far to see God's presence and his power and his hand working to fulfill his purposes in accordance with the counsel of his own perfect will and decree. And to that end, I invite you to think about this passage and how its connection to chapter 9 echoes what Joseph told his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Despising him, Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery, this so without any regard for his well-being. And when you read the story from its front end 
through Joseph's young adulthood, you see nothing but what seems to be the payment of misfortune and mistreatment for faithfulness in the face of wrong. But then in one day, God showed his hand. It was all for the purpose of elevating this man, Joseph, to a place where he could be the savior of the known world. It was particularly the means by which God was going to preserve the seed that he promised in Genesis 3.15. And so when you arrive at Genesis 50.20, you hear Joseph uttering these words to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The sovereign hand of God in the affairs of men. The same can be seen in the book of Esther. Even though the name of God is not mentioned, even once, things seems to be one way. And then the hand of God is revealed and it turns out for good according to his purpose and his decree. Now you ask me, how does what you're saying connect to, to chapter 9 and this chapter, uh, chapter 10? Well, you might remember that Joshua in chapter 9, did not seek out the counsel of God when he was approached by the Gibeonites. Instead, he fell prey to their deception, which entailed pretending to be a people that were from afar off, cut out of the realm of the areas of the people whom God had set apart for total destruction, a just response to their overflowing coffers of immorality and rebellion against the God who created them. God told Joshua on more than one occasion, starting in chapter 1, that he was not to turn to the left or to the right away from his word, but he was to meditate on it day and night. He was to live by it. He was to acknowledge God in all his ways, and God was going to direct his steps at all times, in every situation. Yet there he was in chapter 9, working out of accord with what was prescribed to him. And so he ended up entering into a covenant with a people who were set apart for destruction, or so it seemed. Because remember, as God told Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so in the midst of man's corruption, one not seeking God as he knew he should, and the other acting like the serpent had throughout the ages, starting in the garden, deceiving folk. God uses the situation for good to bring about his purposes. How, you ask? Well, as it turns out, the general, that is our sovereign God, and I'm speaking sort of figuratively here, our general had already gone before Joshua and strategically paved the best path to victory. How so, you ask? Well, first, listen to how our text starts off. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua, Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and his king as he had done to Jericho and his king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. Now listen to Ralph Davis 
take on what I just read. He writes, we can appreciate Adonizetic's dismay once we observe the strategic location of the Gibeonite tetrapolis. That means four cities. The four towns constituted a confederation of which Gibeon was apparently the dominant participant. Gibeon was six miles north-northwest of Jerusalem, guarded the eastern end of the Way of Bet-Horon, an important road between Jerusalem and Agilon to the west, and was a junction for local roads. Why should Adonixedek be so upset from looking at his map of the Holy Land? Because he knew that Israel had already knocked off Jericho and Ai to the east. Now the Gibeonite confederation in the center and west had entered a peace agreement with Israel. Here was a rectangle of four key sites now under Joshua's control. Israel had control of the strategic central plateau. Joseph had cut, Joshua had cut a swat right across the midsection of Canaan. He had driven a wedge between north and south. Brothers and sisters, if you know anything about war, divide and conquer is always a great strategy. Divide and conquer is always the way to go. And here he is smack dab in the center, divided, and now he's also taken in the strongest area in that place in an agreement with his. And so, brothers and sisters, David says that Joshua conquered Jericho and Ai. But do I have to remind you who really did? Do you see how God went before them in the midst of all the human variables and worked it out for their good and for his purposes? And do you recognize that as we travel down the road of our sanctification, our general is also going before us? This is exactly what Romans 8.28 is pre-teaching us. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And I might add, and who commit themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. The hands of the Lord of hosts and the army of the hosts of heaven goes before us. This also connects to what Pastor Caleb was saying this morning when he said we should go forth with and in confidence in our efforts to fulfill the Great Commission. Why? Because God goes before us. He's behind us. He's all around us. And his purposes will be fulfilled. Now the hand of God is not mentioned in verses 1 and 2. But it sure is mentioned throughout this passage. In verse 8, it is God who tells Joshua, do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. In verse 10, we hear the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, the Lord. From our text, we learn that the enemy was struck with a great blow and they ran away. They chased after them. And then what? We hear, and as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And to what end? They were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. The writer is careful to do what we should always do, and that is to give God the credit for the victories in our life. Now, the final thing I'll say on this front is found in verse 14. The verse that's connected to a tremendous miracle that I'm going to address 
under the heading of man's obedience and responsibility. For now, let's look at verse 14, the end of it. It says, for the Lord fought for Israel. Brothers and sisters, I must say, this verse, along with everything else that I've just pointed out about God, makes me want to rip uh, Romans 8.31 out of its context and just start singing, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, I'm pretty sure that as Joshua was dealing with this particular situation, he might have remembered Exodus 17, verses 14 through 16, when he went into the battle against the Amalekites and Moses' hands was held up. And as long as Moses' hands was was held up as looking to God, as owning to God, they were winning the battle. And as soon as hands went down, they were losing. But his hands were held up and they eventually won the battle. And so then the Lord said to Moses, recount in Joshua Read a memorial in Joshua's ear. And in that thing passage, he calls him Jehovah Nisi. That is, the Lord is our banner. The Lord fights for us. The Lord goes before us. In all our situations, whatever we're dealing with, the world, the flesh, the devil, we lean upon God. And the Lord fights our battles. And that is exactly what he is doing here. And so let me say, Joshua got it. For when you read our text, you get the picture of a man who was emboldened in his actions, emboldened in his speech, and emboldened in his faith. So much so that we see him petitioning God for something that's beyond our wildest imagination and doing so in front of the entire congregation. Look at verses 12 through 14. It reads, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven And did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. Now, me in my non-accomplished self decided that I needed to read a whole bunch of commentaries to figure out what's going on here. And I got to tell you, there's commentaries all over the place. There is at least four major takes on this. And it goes from... What you see here is absolutely what happened till God just caused the daylight to last longer into the evening. All right. Now, John Calvin, he's like, he doesn't refer to anything else. He doesn't uh, theorize about anything. John Calvin just accepts this for what it is. And the thing that I always think about in my own life, when people talk about miracles and God doing things that is extreme like this, I often ask myself, why is it that people can't believe that a God who made the world just by speaking it into existence can't do anything else? Why is it that a God who can create a grown behind man, Adam, big, big like this, ready to have babies, and he can't do any of this other stuff? 
I don't know about you, but the God that I serve is a big God. And the God that I serve can suspend nature if he chooses to. And so I'm riding with Calvin. No, no, I'm riding with Jesus, okay? But Calvin can come with us as we say that this is, in my mind, what happened, okay? But whatever position you want to take, the main thing I suggest we take away from this is the fact that Joshua was so in step with God's purpose for his life that he could pray in line with God's purposes, boldly in front of everyone. The text tells us that he prayed in the sight of Israel. Now, which one of you want to go outside and tell the rain to stop and the thunder to stop in front of everyone and let them think that you really, you know, prophesying? I know I can't do it and I won't do it, but Joshua was so connected and so in line with the Lord that he could pray in line with the Lord. And we have to know and pretty much understand that Joshua now has moved in a direction where he's going to go to God. And God is the one that probably told him to do this, to say this. Any other thing to me would be presumption, but I believe based on the text and the tenor of the text that Joshua went to the Lord and the Lord then empowered him to do this. And so it came to pass. And this is akin to Jesus saying, truly I say to you, brothers and sisters, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now I'm not preaching no name it and claim it or prosperity this or whatever the case may be. What I am saying, hear me clearly, is that when we are operating God's will and power and he reveals himself through us, through his word, and we pray in line with his word, God is going to move and act. And so, of course, we know Jesus is not saying you should go pray to and for physical mountains to be moved. That doesn't even sound like something God would ask. But he's saying as you go about the mission of accomplishing those works that God has purposed for you from before the foundation of the world, you should go before him daily and say, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Give me those things that are necessary for me to accomplish your will in the earth. And if you know specifically what those things are, what boss, who do you work for, will you go to and ask for something that's absolutely essential and they will not give it to you? So if your boss will give you something that's absolutely essential to do your work, how much more your father who is in heaven? Here in this passage that I asked for was for God's enemies to be given into the hand of his vessels. And it was in that light that God answered and delivered. Now again, with respect to Joshua and to you and to me, I mentioned that God was the one who was fighting and winning the battle. But notice Joshua was not just standing around. Yes, God was the one who was ultimately delivering the victories. But yes, Joshua still had a responsibility to act and to do so to the best of his ability. Do all things as and to the Lord. He is our rewarder. Joshua did everything to the best of his ability, and that is exactly what you see him doing here. From start to finish, he's reaching out to God. Then he's directing his people as instructed by God. He's asking God to make straight their path to victory. 
here articulated in the miracle of the son. And then he's leading in the destruction of the Lord's adversaries, here manifesting in the killing of the five kings who formed an alliance against at the behest of King Adonai Zedek. Now along the way, and one of the most powerful things we see is what we read in verse 25. It says, And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. The man who needed big encouragement in chapter 1 is now so encouraged, so emboldened in his faith, so walking of the Lord that he does what? Now he has become the chief encourager. Brothers and sisters, as we are strengthened in our walk with the Lord, as we mortify the sin in our life in this road and this path of sanctification, as we learn how to walk obediently before our God, we are supposed to do exactly this, endeavor to do the same thing, or as Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that everything that I'm preaching is true. That's why it's thunder and lightning right now. <laughs> I am going to close right here, but I want you to, if you don't remember anything, remember this. What you see in terms of the destruction of these kings, right? When we look in ourselves, remember Joshua is a type of Christ. Our Christ died for us so that we are now empowered by the Spirit to resist sin to walk in this path of sanctification for God's glory. We are to be about the business of mortifying the flesh, and we are to be about the business of accomplishing God's will in missions. Think about the Great Commission. Think about the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion. And again, the Great Commission. We are God's ambassadors. We are the ones that he has called. And in the midst of the things that we are called to do, we still have to wrestle with our own fallen man. We still have to wrestle with the world, and we still have to wrestle with the devil. But guess what? Jehovah Nisi is with us. That's what we used to say in the Pentecostal Baptist Church. Jehovah Nisi, you know, and Jireh and all of that kind of good stuff. But God is with us, and we have to be confident in that fact, and we have to boldly, as Pastor Caleb said this morning, go forth in the Great Commission. Go forth mortifying the flesh, the sin that so easily besets us in and through the power of God, not neglecting to go to God first. That is a mistake that Joshua made, not to go to God first. We don't want to do that. We want to go to God and acknowledge him in all our ways and let him indeed direct our path. And so as we go down this road, there's two overarching things that I want you to see here. One, we need to give glory to God for the victories in our lives and recognize his hand in all we do and accomplish. That is the pattern that Joshua takes on going forward. And secondly, we need to recognize our responsibility to go on the offensive. We need to pound the gates of heaven with our prayer. Joshua was a man of prayer so much so that he moved heaven and earth, if you will, that the very sun and moon stopped 
Because God heeded him. God has used his prayer as a means to accomplish his purposes. So we need to pound the gates of heaven with prayer and assault the gates of hell through the mortification of sin. That is what you see here. Joshua didn't take any prisoners. God commanded him to wipe everything out. Why? Because it's indicative of us mortifying sin, not playing with sin, not entertaining sin, but completely getting rid of it in our lives. We need to be about doing that, and we need to seek the Lord in our path to do so. In verse 19, you hear these words, pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ died on the cross and once again has empowered us to, to overcome, to be conquerors, not to have sin conquering us, but to be conquerors. And so as we are on this path to get to our promised land, to get to our rest, at the end of this passage, it says that not a one person said anything, had anything to say. And that's indicative of the fact that it was total peace, total rest, because they had conquered according to God in God's power, and now there was no enemies around them. That is what we're supposed to be doing in our lives. We're supposed to be under the power of God, mortifying the flesh, growing more and more from glory to glory, conquering everything in the power of the Spirit, as empowered through Christ's finished work. So brothers and sisters, we know that God has given us the ability by and through his spirit to overcome sin. Let us therefore glorify him by submitting ourselves to the work of the spirit and the pursuit of holiness on this road we're on to the promised land. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we thank you for this example of a man who entrusted his entire life to you, of a man who you equipped to fight the battles for you on your behalf. We recognize once again that you are the one that won that battle and you are the one that win all the battles in our lives. So we ask that we would be able to submit to your spirit, that we would not quench your spirit as he does his sanctifying work in our hearts and in our lives, but we would indeed submit ourselves that we would become a people of prayer, that we would call, cast all our cares upon you, and we would acknowledge you in all our ways. And Lord, we beg of you that as we acknowledge you in all our ways, that you would indeed direct our path. We ask that you would take our wills and make them yours, so that as we pray, we will be praying in accordance with your purposes, your plans, and your decree for our lives, for our brothers, and for your glory and your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.